Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Good morning. It's great to see you. Would you, uh, and I'm glad you can see me now. Would you take your Bibles, if you uh, brought a copy of Scriptures with you, open with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. We're going to spend some time this morning and beginning in verse 14 and uh, work our way down through about verse 17. I want to talk with you on the subject, the power of the gospel. Romans 1, we're going to begin in verse 14 and Man, what a privilege to kick off a worship service with the ordinance of baptism. The, uh, uh, I, I hope we never take that for granted. Um, we've seen in both services today, we saw dads get the privilege uh, to be able to baptize their children, both at the 915 and at the 1045 service, and then others making commitments and professions. And uh, man, it's a great picture testimony of the beginning points of our faith walk in Jesus Christ. It's not the end. It's not the culmination of a long life of walking with Jesus. It's the, it's the beginning point. It's in fact symbolically proclaims the starter's pistol of a lifelong race of transformation. And that's kind of a key word that I want to spend time talking with you about over the next few minutes, the subject of transformation. As we talk about the gospel, what we're talking about is the end product of the gospel applied to people's lives. It's what we sang about. It's talking about coming from death to life, recognizing that trapped in, in sins in a way that we could never undo the rebellion that we've committed, that we've embraced uh, as opposed to a holy God. And yet God, by applying the gospel to our lives, begins us and then fulfills in us this process of transformation, of shaping us, of molding us, of causing us to become like Jesus. And uh, hey, listen, that's why I want to introduce you today to what I think is the mission, the calling, this task that God has assigned to us to pursue. And just as exciting, the vision of what it looks like if we fulfill this mission that God's given us. What would it look like? What What does God want to show us? What will God let us be a part of in the days ahead? We've spent many weeks talking all through the month of August and uh, even last week with um, uh, Brother Kelvin Cochran as he came in and talked with public public safety individuals. He He delved into the subject of family and purpose. How God's created the family unit in such a way that it is the primary laboratory, the primary classroom, the primary place where faith is, is, uh, is instructed, where it's taught, where it's exhibited. It's that primary spot. And I believe family is essential to what God's called Inglewood to, to do, who he's called us to be in these days and in the days ahead. As we look at this, this subject of, uh, of transformation, as we talk about it, I'm not talking about a new mission statement that becomes just kind of a pithy little slogan that you see uh, painted on a wall somewhere. 
I'm talking about an organizing principle that brings our church together and allows us to fulfill that which so glorifies Him in changed lives. Lives of the young, lives of those not so young, lives of people that, that look and talk and shop and do all of those things just like you and I and those in places and parts of the world who've, who've yet to even hear the name Jesus, how they see their lives being impacted and transformed by this gospel. Now, when we talk about the gospel, there's a lot packed into that word, but uh, we find one of the key elements of the gospel, especially in the discussion of its power in the book of Romans. And Romans is a powerfully, theologically rich book. And in it, we learn of a number of things, uh, all throughout it that are consistent with the rest of the scriptures, but they're kind of compacted nicely in the book of Romans. We learn about the perfection of God's creation, how the world that we live in today that's broken, that carries with it suffering and struggles and shame is not God's original design. It's not that God looked down and said, what a mess, let me figure out how to fix that. When God created the world, he created it perfectly. There was no struggle, there was no shame. It was in every way, God, God described it this way, very good, not just good, but very good. He said, it works amazingly well until we tinkered with it. See, when humans started messing with it, when uh, through rebellion or sin, when we started monkeying around with it a little bit, it got to be kind of messy. But hey, listen, that doesn't surprise us. That makes perfect sense. If you were, if you were putting a nice pot of spaghetti sauce on the stove and you've got, it, you've got this big simmering pot of now listen, if you get your dinner from a tray out of the freezer and stick it in the microwave, you don't know what I'm talking about, but maybe you've seen a movie like this. If, I'm talking about where you like take real ingredients and you put them into a pot and then you turn the heat on and it takes time. It's not just two minutes and 45 seconds. I mean, it takes time. You're cooking a pot of spaghetti sauce, just as a for instance, and, uh, and you've got it there, it's simmering, it's doing its thing. And suddenly somebody walks in the kitchen and says, I think that needs salt. And they add, they add a little salt to your creation. Somebody else comes in a little later and says, man, that, what that really needs is some oregano. Let me just put some oregano into this thing. And it'll be, that'll make it much better. And somebody else comes along and says, ah, that's got a weird taste of oregano to it. Let's cover that up with, with red pepper flakes and, uh, and basil and, and pepper. And, and now everybody's made their contribution, but it's really changed what the cook intended for the sauce to taste like. That's what happened in creation. God created the world perfectly and we started adding salt and basil and oregano and a, some red pepper flakes just for some spiciness. And, and listen, here's what happened. We completely spoiled the pot. But God didn't throw it out, nor did he throw us out. God just said, let me show you how to take that and turn it back into something good again. Of course, it's going to take a process, but I'm going to walk you through that process, if you'll let me, take you back to something that's good again. And he does that through the gospel. The word gospel speaks of, generally speaking, the word is, uh, it speaks of good news. In, in its general terms, in the basic understanding of the word, but when it's used in the Bible, it speaks of God's redemptive work through Christ by which we experience forgiveness and, hey, abundance and grace and power and peace. 
Now let me show it to you as we launch out from Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 14. And can I invite you if, uh, if you would stand in honor of the Word of God and Romans 1 beginning in verse 14. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. Paul writing to the church at Rome, picking up right in the middle of a conversation, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Pause right there. Father, even in these moments, would you speak clearly to our hearts and teach us, Lord, what it is to have the gospel not only revealed to us, but applied to our lives. And then as we consider that, I pray that we would respond to you in a way that uh, you uniquely and specifically desire for each of us individually and for all of us corporately. And then I pray that you'd be glorified in that. So have your will and way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You be seated. And uh, hey, listen, if you'd like to follow along, I've got a very simple outline for you today. I want to talk with you about three elements or three observations as it relates to this subject on the power of the gospel. And you could get that outline by texting the word notes to the number that you see on the screen. And if you do, we'll send a link to your device and you can, you'll have that to fill in the blank, all the scriptures, all that neat stuff. Or if you've got your church app, all you got to do is simply just open up your app and it's right there. And you can follow along with the notes there as well. Here's three elements I want us to look at together. First of all, I want you to notice as Paul describes it, I want you to see with me, first of all, the debtor, the debtor, the one who's indebted to, the one who is under obligation. We often think of the Christian life as one that, uh, that exemplifies freedom, that it, it talks about not having debt. It talks about being out from under any obligation. God set us free. In fact, we rewrote old hymns to add lines like, my chains are gone, I've been set free. We add that to it because we want to accentuate the fact that in Christ, in this relationship that God has called us into, we have great freedom. We've been... Uh, our debt toward God has been paid and therefore we're free of that debt. And by the way, that's true. It's incomplete, but it's true. We have been set free. When the Bible speaks of that way, that's an element of our salvation. If you want to look at that with me, Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14. Notice how Paul writes to the church at Colossae. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions, in your rebellion, and the uncircumcision of your flesh in your outside of being the covenant with God, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, catch it, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." Now, we start thinking about certificate of debt. What are you talking about? That's that paper you signed when Discover sent you that free money. When you went to the bank and they said, we'll have an arrangement. We'll let you live in this house as long as you send us $1,342.12 every single month. You can live in our house. I mean, your house. 
But it's really ours because if you don't pay it, we're taking it back. And, uh, and that, that mortgage instrument, that document, that loan agreement that, that said you owe us. The Bible says that God took that instrument, that, 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 that agreement, that, that debt notification and he took it he wrote canceled on it and he nailed it to a cross and that we would no longer be responsible for that debt why because someone else satisfied that debt that's Jesus Christ's work fulfilled the requirements of the law and brought those of us who were spiritually dead the Bible says to life it forgave all of our sins by the way all means all that means your past sin your present sin and your future sins that he forgave all of our sins and all of our transgressions all of our acts of rebellion against a holy God but now listen that alone does not restore you and I to what God created us for now listen that alone does not restore you to God's plan and purpose for your life. Can I show you? Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. The story of the beginnings about God's creative account here. In Genesis 2 verse 15 it says, Then the Lord God took the man. So having created the Garden of Eden, having created a perfect world, then God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden for a purpose to cultivate it and to keep it. By the way, in my translation, Genesis 2 precedes the fall of Genesis 3. So the purpose, the work, the things that we're called to do, cultivating, some of you, you think that's worse than death. I've got to work in the garden? No, 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 no. Listen, when God created a purpose, when He created you, He gave you a purpose that's not connected to sin or the fall. It's part of God's very good grand design. So, simply canceling out your, your, your mortgage debt does not restore you to God's plan and purpose. It simply starts you on this journey back to fulfilling that which God had created you for in His very good, perfect design for your life. You say, Chris, maybe you're stretching a little bit. Well, listen, I've got some help. I brought a witness from Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. The Bible teaches us that it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. Your debt's been canceled. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God's by His grace, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Oh man, salvation, it's perfect. We've been given, it's, it's a free gift, we're free. Verse 10, for we are His workmanship. In other words, He saved us and recreated us. We're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for Good works, which God prepared beforehand, Genesis 2.15, that we might walk, live our lives in them. God saved you, but then he gave you purpose. Paul said, that's what I understand when I'm talking to you. That's the background of being a debtor. Back to Romans 1 verse 14. Paul says, I am a debtor. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The language here speaks to the fact that the Gospels give us purpose, which is an obligation, a responsibility to all mankind, both the wise and the simple, both the Greek and the non-Greek. The people who Paul's writing to, you may say, that's kind of mean of him calling those people barbarians. They only knew two kinds of people, us and them. By the way, that's the only kind of people you know, us and them. This was part of the thems, the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the simple, the men and the women. That's a, he, said, he said, I'm under obligation to all 
peoples. I'm under obligation to them. This word under obligation for us is two words, but in the original language is only one. O philetes, which speaks of a usually a financial obligation, but oftentimes speaks of, as it does here, a moral or social responsibility. Now catch it. It's not a responsibility based on the worthiness of the people we're responsible to. In other words, it's not a responsibility to the people because the people are adorable and, and, and deserve it. No, it's a responsibility to the gospel because the gospel is worthy. We have a responsibility to it, which, which manifests itself in our carrying out that responsibility to all the peoples around us. So Paul says, I am under obligation to all people because of the gospel and the gospel is worthy of our obligation. That's the debtor. Now notice secondly, the declaration. Paul says in verse 15 of Romans 1, he says, for my part, I'm eager based on that, based on my obligation. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm eager to preach the gospel. He says while he's under obligation and responsibility as a debtor, he's also eager to preach the gospel. And when he talks about preaching, here's the piece I want you to catch. He's not talking about a debate. He's not talking about a casual discussion. He's speaking of a declaration. He's not saying, hey, let's try to work through some details and see if we can figure out what God's up to. He's saying, I'm announcing to you, I am proclaiming to you, I am, here's the word, I am declaring to you that God has made salvation, redemption, your restoration. He has made all of that possible in the gospel. And by the way, that's good news. He connects all of these things uh, in a way that he says, I am eager to announce to you, to proclaim to you, to declare to you this truth that has been handed down to me from on high. Then notice this verbal transition. By the way, no words are wasted, so don't miss this. I am eager to preach to you, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice how Paul connects in this verbal transition, how he connects these two ideas. I am eager to preach and I am not ashamed. I'm eager and without shame. Now, you might ask yourself the question, why did he connect those words? It's as if Paul wants us to grasp this idea under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the way, that Paul wants us to grasp the idea that silence equals shame. So he says, I'm eager to preach because I'm under obligation and the gospel is the power of God and I am not ashamed. But if I didn't preach, I would give testimony that either the gospel is not powerful or that I was somehow ashamed of the gospel. It's not that I'm not ashamed. He said, I would be ashamed if I were silent. He connects these two ideas. So you get both a positive and a negative out of this. He connects these two things for us to see that silence is not just fear or cowardice, but in fact, shame. Shame about what? How could he say that silence with the gospel could be a statement of shame? What would we be ashamed of? Well, first of all, look at how the word is used elsewhere and you'll get a picture of what he means by shame. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 16. Paul again writing, this is his word. 
the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, or ones I for us, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Wait a minute. Be merciful to him because he served me even while I was in chains, a prisoner in jail, yet he served me. He wasn't ashamed of me. Wait a minute. Paul said, in the same way you might be ashamed to go, yeah, that's my friend in there and you know, he's a criminal, a felon and he's a terrorist. He said, hey, he wasn't ashamed of me. Even though I was a wretch in prison, an enemy of the state, yet he wasn't ashamed of me. He had no shame toward me. And in the same way, same word now, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, he's pointing at the fact and he's saying some people might even be ashamed of who Jesus is. His understanding of shame here is akin to being embarrassed or recoiling from some kind of an unworthy hero. That makes sense to us. I mean, if you look at the caricatures of heroes that we create for ourselves, you've got Superman who bullets bounce off his chest. He's able to jump over tall buildings in one single step. He can outrun a speeding train. And he always, he always wins. Even the kryptonite has limits because somebody comes and snatches away. Batman and Robin, the dynamic duo. I remember them when they actually drove a car before they were cartoons back when, the, when, when anyway, when I was younger, way back in the 1900s. And uh, anyway, Batman and Robin, I mean, they would often be, be trapped by a villain who would hold them up. And yet after Commissioner Gordon gave them the call and they went after him in pursuit, they always got their person. They always brought justice. It always ended well. These heroes always accomplished their mission. Hey, listen, even Scooby-Doo and Shaggy. Scooby-Doo and Shaggy, as messed up as they were, riding around in their VW microbus with a bunch of hippies, even Scooby and Shaggy. Scooby and Reggie? And they would always, always, always unmask the mystery and capture the bad guy and win the race. You'd never be ashamed of them. But Paul said, most would think I should be ashamed of Jesus, but I'm not ashamed. Why would they be ashamed of Jesus? Because this one that you're saying you're following, who's supposed to be the king of the universe, was captured by a bunch of religious nerds. He was arrested and held captive. He was beaten and mocked and spat upon and whipped and ultimately forced to carry a criminal's cross to a place of punishment for high treason where he was stripped naked, nailed to a cross, hung in the air only to be mocked and taunted by the people that came by. If you're really God, get yourself down from there. Then we'll believe. <laughs> Your great hero was abused like that? The one who's going to save the world was abused like that? Yet Paul said, I'm not ashamed. How could he not be ashamed of that? Oh, because that was Friday. But on the third day, it changed. On the third day, 
He got up and walked out of a borrowed tomb. On the third day, the, the Roman guards couldn't protect, uh, couldn't protect the world from him. On the third day, the angel just, just sat up on the edge of a rock and said, why are you looking for him here? He's not here. He's risen. On the third day, the big rock that held the door had already been rolled away. On the third day, Paul said, because of that, I'm not ashamed. You may have thought it looked bad. You may have thought it was ugly. You may have thought the gospel was a stumbling block. By the way, he said that. He said, oh, a crucifixion, that's a stumbling block to those who don't believe. They see that and they go, ooh, that's disgusting. I want to, I want to, Chris, I want to write me a salvation story that makes me not look so bad and makes Jesus look like a Superman. Yeah, well, it's not your story to write. The part you wrote turned out pretty bad. You messed up the spaghetti sauce. But God came and redeemed it. And he made it different. He changed it. And Paul declares that. He says, I am not ashamed. It's as though he just said, I'm going to plant my feet right here. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to all who would believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For all of us and all of them, it is the power of God unto salvation. And I have no shame about that. You may think that my Jesus somehow got duped into this, but my Jesus was in duped into nothing. My Jesus not only only did all of that but he did it not for himself but for those who had mocked him those who had taunted him for it's from the cross where Jesus turned his head toward heaven while still struggling to catch his breath and said father forgive them they don't understand what they're doing who's them the one holding the hammer the one who had won the dice toss for his clothes. The one who had said crucify him. The one who taunted him and said, just get down from there, then we'll believe. For the one who said, you've saved others, save yourself. For the, hey, for Chris Aiken, whose sin he was paying the penalty for there to begin with. Father, forgive them. They don't get it yet. But forgive them. Paul said, my Jesus not only overcame those who came against him and overwhelmed the last enemy of men in death, but he did it on behalf of people like me who brought about his death. This price was revealed as payment to set right every wrong, to enable every single solitary one who would yield to him, who would follow him, who would trust him, who would live for him, who would love him to walk as free men. And Paul didn't shrink back in shame over it. He proclaimed it loudly. This is the very power of God unto salvation. One more thing, when Paul talks about salvation, he's not talking about that moment when God says not guilty. It's not just justification, to use a theological term that he's talking about. He says it's the power of God for salvation. That's that moment of salvation when we're declared that we're not, will not be held liable for our crimes. 
But it's also the power of God to deliver us from the estate we find ourselves in to the purpose for which He created us. The theological term for that is sanctification. It's as God moves us and molds us and shapes us into the holiness that is in fact Jesus' image. When he says it's the power of God, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. He's talking about that moment of salvation. He's talking about that moment that precedes baptism. But he's also talking about that process by which God shapes and molds and conforms us to the image of Christ. That place where, where as we're growing and becoming and we say, God, show me about me what, what's ugly. And he says, look at your anger. And we go, oh, the anger. I'm so sorry for that. God, help me rid myself of the anger. And he takes that layer of the onion, that extra piece of clothing. He pulls off anger. And you think, finally, I've arrived. He says, no, 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 no. Just below that anger is your bitterness. And just below that bitterness is your hurt. Just below that is your Rebellion. Just below that is your self-interest. Just below that is your... And he just keeps peeling back pieces until... Well, until we look like Christ. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto sal both that point of salvation and the... And by the way, it's sufficient to deliver me to the other side where there is no more sin suffering, shame, only sanctified saints in the presence of a Savior declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's justification, it's sanctification, it's glorification. He said it is the power of God unto salvation. All of that and for all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the us and to the thems. It's sufficient for all of that. Don't dare try to filter this glorious gospel that is powerful down to a moment in time when you pray to prayer. This is power of God's transformation in our lives. The debtor, the declaration, number three, I want you to see the demonstration. Why did God do what he did the way he did? Well, the substitutionary atonement of Christ where our champion steps in and takes the place of the condemned, it's a pretty strange way to save us at least from our perspective. But from God's perspective, it's the way for God to fulfill two elements. He can hold a perfect standard and be ultimately merciful toward us. See, God doesn't, God never does the grandparent thing. Well, I know that's your parents' rule, but bless your heart, I'm going to let you get away with it, you little adorable dumpling. Here, have a lollipop. He never does that. God's standard is perfect perfection. It never changes. Jesus said, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect. That's his standard. How can God hold imperfect creatures to a perfect standard? How could anyone declare that a perfect God has no right to declare that his creation would be perfect? Here's what he said though. When you become imperfect, the only way to settle that is death yours without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin without the without your death there's no atonement for your rebellion against perfection unless of course I were merciful and brought a replacement you know God's merciful right now I know there's times where you may question that you may you may even pray like this God have mercy on me how can you let me go through this be merciful to me but God's always merciful. It's who He is. Jot down Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. Let's do it from the New Living Translation. 
The faithful love of the Lord never ends. Oh, his faithful covenant love toward us is without end. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Some of us think of God's mercy like your fuel tank. Like the, the fuel tank on my, my Tacoma. Well, I fill it up, I top it off, I drive out, and it immediately starts moving to the left. And the further I drive, the further down it gets. The more mercy I consume, the less is in the tank for me to work. And we think, well, God must work that way too. God, I must be on your last nerve. God, I must have, I must have, I must have got pushed you to your final. This is the final straw. No, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says God's tank never empties. It says he starts over, he tops it off every night before he puts it back in the drive. Every night. Some of us think, oh, God's just, God's, uh, I've pushed him so far, God's down in the prayer zone at the bottom where the, the little block turns uh, pink. And uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go out and look at your fuel gauge when you get out there in the parking lot. Some of you came to church on a prayer. <laughs> You're thinking, Lord, let us not have to walk the rest of the way to church in Jesus' name. You should be praying, let us get back to Harris Teeter when we leave the church so we can put more in it. But anyway, so... You think that's how God's mercy works, but that's not how it works. He's on full. In fact, he's in that area to the other side of the F where it's pushing against that little needle thingy. So it can't ever come down. Your mercies are new every day. Well, how does God, who is ultimately merciful and absolutely perfect, provide redemption for people like you and I who would test the patience of Job? How does he do that? through the substitutionary atonement of Christ. God did the only thing he could have done. If he's infinitely merciful and simultaneously perfectly just, holy, and righteous, only the gospel can effectively redeem us. It's why Paul says in Romans 1 verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, in God's work in our lives, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. In it, the gospel, God demonstrates his very righteousness. Notice that statement from faith to faith. Now, it's kind of poetic language, the way it's structured. It means faith from beginning to end. So, it's not a moment of believing, but it's a life of of trusting, of faithing in God, of believing in Him, of walking in Him, of placing our hope in His sufficiency and in His satisfaction. It's why we have been talking about transformation and why we've been talking for weeks about transformed homes or families. It's why I believe that the Lord wants us to organize our whole way of thinking our entire model of ministry around this word transformation, around this idea that God, he's not done with us yet. But Chris, I fired the starter's pistol. It's over, right? No. That's just you leaving the starter's block and God walking you through this process of becoming like Christ. It's, it's transformation that's ongoing. 
for as long as you're on this planet. Whoever you are, wherever you are, it's God's transformation. That's why he says from faith in the beginning to faith all the way throughout into the end. From faith to faith all throughout that the righteousness of God is being revealed. It's why God in this process of transformation, I believe he wants us to center it around his original design, the home. Where he wants us to spend our energies, our focus on equipping moms and dads to be primary faith trainers of their own family. So that mom and dad are teaching boys and girls and teens and adults and they're they're training all through this transformational process they're pressing forward from home to home they're encouraging the growth they're helping the growth God wants us to center this transformation work around the centerpiece of the home it's why you have before you when you came in I, I pray somebody handed you a booklet like this that talks about 5,000 homes it's got a commitment card in there but it it covers this uh, this acronym that I'm going to talk with you about but if you didn't get one, don't worry, don't worry. They don't cost anything. They are available at all the exits and at the tables in the middle of the room. They're available to you because this is how I think God's going to organize who we are and how we go about fulfilling what he's called us to do. Here's how we understand the vision. That God would allow us to see 5,000 homes transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 5,000 homes transformed. What does that mean again? Yes, you remember. It means all of that. Being changed, being shaped from the starter's pistol to the end of the race, being moved, being, being, being formed into the image of Christ by, not by good psychology or good habits or a new trick, but by the very gospel, Christ's work, the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. 5,000 homes. You say, why 5,000 homes? Here's what we think. We think if we can get to a place of seeing 5,000 homes transformed by the gospel, that it's going to be work initially. Think about a flywheel. It's going to be work initially to get the wheel moving. But as we see 100 homes and then 200 homes and then 1,000 homes and then 1,200 homes and then 1,400, what we're going to see is we're going to see a movement of God that picks up speed on its own that you're no longer trying to push the wheel. You're just trying to keep up with it. As it continues to spin, as it continues to roll, as the gospel of God continues to do what it does. As the theologian once said, you don't have to defend it. You just got to open the cage door and let it out. Where the gospel takes over and it begins to see homes changed and, and, and it begins to see Jesus exalted. It begins to find hope, take the place of hopelessness. 5,000 homes. To recognize that Honestly, if we as a church committed to that, the first thousand of that would probably be taken care of just among us. But then most of us live around others who are like us. Unless you live in the country, then your closest neighbor may be 50 miles. But once you get to them, wherever they are, to the left or the right of you, or across the street, what if they could experience that same kind of transformation because... You were able to show them God always intended for you to experience great purpose and, and he's made you the primary faith trainer in your home and our church is busy about helping folks figure out what that means and how to do that well. What if in the process of that we could carry that? You may say, well, what's, what is a transformed home? We think it, 
it circles around four key commitments. And you see those in that acronym of HOME. Four key commitments. First of all, that, that you would hold to the habits. What are those habits? Well, there's four of them too because we're Baptists and you need subpoints in your outline. But here they are simply, rest, bless, gather, go. Resting in our relationship in Christ. In other words, cultivating what does it mean for me to be a Jesus follower? Bless. Connecting for your family, loving them, modeling Jesus for those in your home, extending grace, sharing in, in the good times, being a blessing to those even in your own household, your own family. To gather, to commit to gathering together regularly, your home and this home and that home and this home, as they gather together in this home together, this family together, a family of families called Inglewood. So that we can be encouraged, we can be strengthened, we can be trained, we can be transformed corporately so that we can take that transformation again back into our homes and then into the communities where we live. Rest, bless, gather, and then go. Because if we kept it to ourselves, we would first of all, we would not be under obligation as Paul is. In fact, we would demonstrate more of a shame than to not be ashamed. We would say the gospel was good enough for me, but hey, probably not good enough for you. Or you're not good enough for it. Or Jesus didn't help you. When in fact, he came for all. So that all who would believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All oh, the rest, bless, gather, and go. That's just holding to the habits. The second element of this is owning the table. What does that mean? It means we live in a crazy, weird, strange time of the world where we're so... Excuse me, we're so stinking busy, families don't even gather together. One day you look up and you had a six-year-old, the next day you look up and she's 16 and asking for the keys. And you're like, when did that happen uh, over the last 10 years? But you missed it. You were going, she was going, then there was this and that. Here's what we're saying. What if we could just choose as a family to make a core value and to live it out, to set aside five meals a day, uh, five, a day, that would be awesome. I'd like that, five meals a week. Now for you, you may say that's absolutely impossible. Well, what could you commit to, three? Good for you, do that. One, good for you, do that. But five, why? Well, if there's three meals a day and seven days a week, that's 21 meals a week. Could you just less than, I don't know, 25% of those? Say, we're going to do those together. What does that mean? Well, it might mean breakfast on Monday before you go to school. It might mean Sunday dinner, like when you leave here. It might mean, uh, it might mean Saturday lunch and Saturday dinner. I don't know what it means for you. You have to figure that out for you. But what if you could set aside a time where you took these blessed little devices that keep us connected to everyone else and you turned it off or you put it in a basket and you put it somewhere else and you converse with one another? How's your life? Now, some of you are thinking that would be worse than a trip to the dentist. <laughs> I don't want to talk to them. I know, but she's your mother and you have to talk to her. Or better yet, you should want to. Because, hey, listen, what if you spent enough time talking that you realized you had more in common than you had that was different? What if in the midst of that, you guys could find out that in your different circles of the world, your different circles of life, that you saw God move here and this one saw God move here and this one saw God move here and you could celebrate what God's doing together just by 
whether it's, I wouldn't even make it formal, just where you could sit and say, this is what God's doing. You could be a, hey, catch it, a family. Holding to the habits, owning the table, marking the milestones. Here's what we know. There are different places and times that are natural pauses, say laws, if you like the Psalms, in life where it makes normal sense to just consider where am I with Jesus. We saw some of those this morning, baptism. I'll guarantee you, everybody baptized said, not, hey, I've arrived, let's go find a Luke Combs concert and get after it. That's not what they said. They said, man, I'm a Jesus follower. I represent him. what's, What's next? Hey, listen, what if we as a church were able to help put an answer to the question? And what if we as a family said, now that we've done, now that we've gotten married, honey, Let's talk about what it means for us to be Jesus people together. What, what does it mean when, when our children move from childhood to adolescence or from adolescence to high school graduation or high school graduation to completing college? Or what does it mean to be an empty nester? What does it mean to hit these different milestones for us? And we find that way of equipping inside the church and then we find that way of committing beyond that and marking these milestones together and then engaging beyond your home. Here's what that says. The gospel all cooked up in a jar may be good news for you, but it's not good news for anyone else. But what if we as a family could move in the direction of need, move toward hurting, move toward brokenness, and say, we as a family, we're going to make our world better. We're going to change our corner. We're going to impact it. We're going to influence it. You may say, I don't know what that looks like. Chris, what does this look like nine months from now? I don't know. I don't know what nine minutes from now looks like. But here's what I do know. The one who knows what nine minutes, nine years, or nine millennium looks like. And if I know what to do with this moment, then I'll leave what tomorrow looks like with him. I could make the commitment today for him. And we do that as a family, as a home. You say, nah, my, Chris, I don't know that I could do that. I mean, I'm a... I'm a single. Man, having dinner with yourself every night is going to be a piece of cake. You ought to be able to work out that scheduling fairly well. It doesn't matter what your family looks like. Why couldn't it be you? Did did you surprise God like yours is the one house that it doesn't fit in and God figured it out for everybody except you? That's crazy. God's got this thing figured out. What if we could commit to that as a family and a home, uh, regardless of what it looks like, but my home and your home, if we did, and we took seriously the gospel, then this is what our mission would look like. We could say it this way, every home reaching every home with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every home reaching every home with the gospel. Chris, does that mean we're going to have a Tuesday night visitation? Do you want to bring your whole family to Tuesday night? I'll hang out with you. But it could just mean, hey, inviting the neighbor over for your family dinner. And finding out what's broken in their life, how you can pray for them, and where you found hope and realize that God goes before you. And he finds brokenness and he connects people who are in the journey toward wholeness with people who are in a mess. And he connects those two together in such a way that he ends up with two in a journey toward wholeness. What if God would let us be a part of that? What if he'd let us do it? I'm going to tell you. This is why this week I'm asking you to prayerfully consider it. Well, Chris, why don't you just tell us what we're going to do? I do that every Sunday. That doesn't work so well. But here's what I am at saying. This week I'm asking you to consider it. And next week I'm going to ask you to join me and my family and commit to it. 
next week, come back and say, you know what? I can't speak for 5,000, but I can speak for my home. We're committed. We'll be a transformed home. You can count on us for holding to the habits, for owning the table, for marking the milestone, for engaging men. You can count on that. Show us what we got to do. Help us figure it out, but we're in. And then we'll just put the first 1,000 on the board. And then what if in a, in a month it's 1,200? Because every home was reaching every home. What if the next month it's 1,800? The next month it's 2,400? What if the next month, hey, listen, what if Rocky Mount has an identity crisis because so many people start following Jesus that they don't even know what to say on Facebook anymore? I mean, they forget how to just snipe at people and they just want to bless each other. What a terrible place the world would be. The newspapers would be all unemployed. They wouldn't have anything to write. Oh, but Jesus would be glorified. And you may be listening to that and going, Chris, that's overwhelming. There's no way I could do that. Honestly, you will struggle doing that if you try to do it on your own or apart from Christ in you. So let me ask you, have you ever given your life to him? Well, of course, I'm a church member. That's not what, they're two different questions. But thank you for that. Have you ever yielded your life to him? You know where you where you said, Lord, I don't have the answers, but you do. Lord, I can't pay the price, but you did. Lord, I can't get there, but you'll help me and walk with me. I trust you. I'll walk with you. Have you ever done that? If you haven't, it doesn't matter who you are. That's his invitation to you. Whether you're nine or, nine or 90, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're tall or short, whether you're a Clemson fan or some lost football player. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. The Lord's got a plan for you, and it's a redemptive plan. It's to restore you to purpose. It's to allow you to experience the fullness of what he created you for. And what he asks of you is to turn to him and trust him. Turn and trust. Turn and trust. Jesus already settled the debt. He, he's already done all the work to forgive. He's waiting on you to ask for it. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week, and until next time, may the Lord bless you.